Well, this morning, we're going to continue our series on the book of Matthew, continuing with the theme that Matthew introduced in chapter 24, namely the second coming of Jesus Christ. Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that his return will be unexpected and sudden. And he warns that they must be ready, be vigilant, and be prepared for his return. He compares the expectant disciple to a faithful and wise servant who welcomes their master upon return from a long journey. And now over the centuries, scholars and theologians have debated the meaning of various portions of scripture. But there's one message in the New Testament that's not disputed. Jesus is coming back. Amen. He's returning to gather the elect and ultimately to establish his reign in the new heavens and the new earth, his everlasting covenant. And scripture is very clear. His return is certain. The importance of this is emphasized in scripture as Jesus repeats this crucial message several times to his disciples. And we've already seen that Matthew recounts and groups these teachings together to emphasize to his readers the Messiah will one day return. In our reading today, the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus continues to teach his disciples the necessity of being ready and being prepared as they await his return. But also, in our passage, he provides them a glimpse, a behind-the-scenes look, as it were, at what to expect when he returns. So let's turn together to Matthew chapter 25, and you can follow along as I read verses 1 through 13. The parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray together. 
Father, you have the words of eternal life. This morning, we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears. Lord, open our eyes to see you and our ears to hear, to hear you through your word. Father, I ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are anything like me, weddings can be a bittersweet experience, especially if you have three daughters. Now, don't get me wrong. My wife, Jean, and I recently had the wonderful experience of celebrating the marriage of our youngest daughter, Evelyn, as we have done with our other two daughters. Like the previous two weddings, there were weeks and months of preparation and planning and organizing. And then there was the rehearsal. At each step, the excitement increased as everyone's expectation grew. The wedding was a joyous occasion. It was filled with excitement and much celebration. But it was also a sober occasion. After 20 plus years of shaping and influencing her, we were letting go. We were entrusting our daughter to the care of another, to care for her and cherish her, believing that she would enjoy the joy of marriage that God so graciously gives to us. In our text this morning, Jesus tells of another wedding, one that is also filled with joy and celebration and much expectation. This story also has a bittersweet ending, but not one that Jesus' disciples were anticipating. Like in previous parables, Jesus is not telling a story about something that actually happened. The parable of the ten virgins is a story that Jesus told with specific emphasis and specific purpose. He is telling his disciples that there will one day be a great wedding celebration for those who are ready and are anticipating his return. But he also gives a warning, a sober warning, that there is a terrible fate that awaits those who should be prepared and are not. Now, in some ways, our story might read like a scene from a suspense movie. It begins in verse 1 with the adverb, then referring to a future event. Jesus declares, then the, the kingdom of heaven will be like. And he starts building the suspense by setting the stage for a future event, an obviously historically crucial event, the return of the Son of Man. After the scene is set, he goes on to describe a wedding feast. Now, one might think it is nothing more than a typical wedding ceremony in first century Palestine. Now for us, not much is known about the wedding customs or the actual ceremony of that time. And in Jesus' narrative, much of the details have been left out because it's assumed his listeners would be familiar with the customs of that day. However, as the anticipation continues to grow, as the wedding day arrives, the bridegroom, or the groom as we would call him, he gathers with his friends to meet up with the bride 
and her friends. And then there would be a wedding ceremony and typical for ancient Palestine, after the ceremony, there would be a procession to the bridegroom's home. And at the home, there would be a celebration that would often last several days. The procession would typically take place at night where lights or lanterns were used to light the way and to make the occasion more spectacular and more celebratory. At this particular wedding feast, however, the bridegroom is apparently in no hurry. His arrival is delayed after the ceremony. The ten virgins in our stories would have been ten bridesmaids or maidens. They were assisting the bride. And as we read, ten of the maidens go out to meet the bridegroom and to be in, in position for the procession that would lead to his home. Everyone in the procession was expected to carry their own lamp. In that day, lamps were usually torches with rags at the top that were soaked with oil and could be periodically doused with more oil to keep them burning. And those that were wise or prudent brought an extra flask of oil to keep the fire burning. You see, an unlit torch during a procession at night was really of no benefit. There might even be those who showed up without a torch and they would be considered party crashers or villains. Well, in the parable, Jesus adds to the intrigue by dividing the maidens into two groups, the foolish and the wise. The wise maidens are considered wise because they brought an extra flask of oil in case the procession was delayed. And the foolish, it is noted, they didn't bring enough oil. And as the story continues, the drama builds. All ten maidens fall asleep waiting for the bridegroom. The text says they became drowsy. And then suddenly, at midnight, a cry goes out. Look, the bridegroom. Someone sees him approaching in the distance, and everyone is told to go out and meet him. The ten maidens wake up, and they quickly prepare to meet the bridegroom, and the wise are able to brighten their lamps with the extra oil that they've brought, but the foolish have no oil, and their lamps are going out. The five foolish maidens ask the others to share some of their oil, but they're refused. There will not be enough oil to go around, they're told. So instead of meeting the bridegroom, the foolish maidens venture out in the night to buy more oil. Well, in the meantime, the bridegroom arrives. The wise maidens join him at the marriage feast, and the door to the feast is shut. Later, when the foolish maidens return, the bridegroom will not open the door, and after they plead with him, he announces simply, I do not know you. The five foolish maidens are greatly disappointed. They were expecting to be up front and center with the bride and the bridegroom when the festivities began. Their hopes were dashed. You see, their failure to initially be ready when the bridegroom arrived meant that they were now excluded. I think it's no coincidence that as Jesus concludes the parable, 
he emphasizes the exclusion of the five foolish maidens. Verse 10 closes with these emphatic words. The door was shut. And then in verse 12 he says, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. He's emphasizing that the words that follow are important. I do not know you. In effect, it's too late. The wedding feast has already started. And so some might ask, in the context of the story, why does the bridegroom exclude the foolish maidens? And why does he deny ever knowing them? I mean, after all, they were invited to his wedding. Well, this is not simply the callous response of the bridegroom. Instead, Jesus is telling his disciples and telling us today that while there is a wedding feast coming one day, there will be those who will not meet the bridegroom. They're not invited. The believer that knows the Savior will be watching and waiting and anticipating his return. And those that are not watching, well, they show by their indifference and their lack of preparedness that they really are not true believers. So the bridegroom's reaction is not a callous response, but a rejection of those who, who despite their appearance, never made preparation for the coming of the kingdom, and he does not know them. Now over the centuries, some have assigned special meaning to various aspects of the parable, such as the oil representing the Holy Spirit or the good works of believers, or the virgins representing different groups of Pharisees. Scholars have been hesitant to make such concrete allegorical associations, but for us, I think this morning, it's not hard for us to interpret the following. The bridegroom is the Messiah. His delay in coming to the feast is the delay in the second coming of the Messiah. The five wise virgins are those who long for, anticipate, and are prepared for the coming of the Messiah, those that are invited to meet the bridegroom at the wedding feast. And the five foolish virgins, well, those, those are the ones who are not prepared for the Messiah's return and do not meet the bridegroom. In our story, they don't realize their fate until it's too late. Their disappointment's not realized until after the bridegroom returns. In essence, their fate is not realized in this life, but in the life to come. Well, like in this parable, we too are waiting. We're waiting for a magnificent and glorious wedding celebration. In the parable, Jesus uses the customs of his day to describe how wonderful and grand the celebration will be. In essence, he creates an interpretation of a wedding that later the Apostle John gets a glimpse of. Glimpse of. And so in Revelation chapter 19, the Apostle John describes the marriage supper of the Lamb, starting at verse 6. John writes, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, 
Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made, ready, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Brothers and sisters, this is our longing. This is what we are waiting for. In verse 9, John writes this. He says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will experience joy inexpressible, cleansed from our sins, and clothed in Christ's righteousness. Amen. Well, let's return to Evelyn's wedding. All the preparation and work that went into the event made for a beautiful ceremony, and the wedding, I have to tell you, was grand. Some even said it was the most beautiful October wedding they'd ever been to. I would agree. Now, while I'm sure the bride thoroughly enjoyed and appreciated all the splendor and all the festivities, that's not what she was most looking forward to. Not the beautiful flowers, the delightful food, the many guests, nor the joyous dancing. No, it was the groom, her husband. In our parable, the guests are all waiting for the bridegroom. Their anticipation was in seeing him. Here is the bridegroom, the text reads. Come out to meet him. The focal point of heaven, brothers and sisters, is in seeing the Lord. And it is that hope that should drive us and should motivate us. Our longing for heaven is to be with Jesus, to spend eternity with our Savior. David writes in Psalm 16, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this was Paul's longing and the greatest desire of his heart to be with his Savior and to see him face to face. And so to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he writes this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And he concludes in verse 17, and so we will always be with the Lord. Whether dead or alive at Christ's coming, Paul's heart and desire was to be with the Lord. Well, like those in our parable today, we're still waiting for the wedding feast to begin. We've been learning these last two Sundays how Jesus emphasized to his disciples the necessity of being ready for his return. So how can we as his disciples, how can we orient our lives? 
How can we orient our lives in such a way that we would do this faithfully? Be ready for his return. I think it would be appropriate to ask ourselves this question at this point. Am I living with a continual expectation of Christ's return? Am I ready to meet him face to face? Now, I can't answer that question for you, but I think it's one that all of us, we need to think about. Our lives on this earth, they're filled with many distractions and other preoccupations that compete for our affections and would, if, I think, if we let them, draw our hearts away from anticipating Christ's return. So I think in order to help us, let's consider three points of application. And so the first point, first point of application, what practices can we develop that will heighten our expectation of his return? What practices can we develop that will heighten our expectation of his return? While we wait for the wedding feast to begin, what can we do? How can we orient our hearts toward the Savior to heighten our expectation of his inevitable return? Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, starting at verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In verse 13, Paul writes, he says, we are waiting for a blessed hope. Brothers and sisters, it's an expectant waiting. Like a bride waiting to be with her groom, anticipating her wedding day, she will do all she can do to be prepared. Her mind is focused, her thoughts are undistracted, and her words and her actions, they reflect the desire of her heart, and they please her groom. So how do we stay focused and undistracted? I'd like to suggest three practices that we can implement. The first, think about and meditate on the words Jesus has spoken to us. Think about and meditate on the words Jesus has spoken to us. In Joshua chapter one, he writes, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. And the writer of Hebrews tells us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I think as we meditate on Jesus' words, our thoughts and our desires will be transformed and become more like his. The second point would be act like him. 
Act like Jesus. Follow his example. Imitate him in your actions and your words. As our minds are renewed, our behavior will reflect Christ's. John chapter 14. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. Acting like Jesus is motivated by our love for him. And as we grow and mature in our love for the Savior, our lives should reflect Christ's character. We begin to love like he did, serve like he did, and sacrifice for others like he did. And thirdly, talk to him. Talk to him. Prayer draws us closer to the Savior and makes us more aware of his love for us. In Psalm 69, David calls out to the Lord. He says, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. So how do we stay focused on Jesus' return? Well, we think about and meditate on his words to us. We follow his example in our actions and we pray. Now, the Christmas season is upon us, as John reminded us. While our culture would want us to make this about football, food, fun, and family, Christmas actually has always been about the coming of the Messiah. I think it would serve each of us and our families to make it a point that this Christmas that we celebrate the fact that the Messiah has come. So the second point of application, identify distractions. Identify distractions. In verse 14 of Titus chapter 2, we read, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. As we continue to wait, as we continue to wait for his appearing, we are being sanctified, redeemed, and purified for good works. However, we can easily be preoccupied and distracted things that vie for our affections and our heart's attention. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warns us, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I think we need to be aware that there are things in this life that will lead our hearts astray. Because the wedding feast might be a long way off, we need to stay vigilant and be aware of what those things are. In our parable, the bridegroom's arrival was delayed, but the wise maidens, they were prepared. They were prepared for the delay, and they were ready for his return. We need to ask ourselves, what hinders us from regularly feeding on God's word or spending time in prayer? <clears throat> Is it simply the busyness of life or career aspirations or perhaps the daily barrage and distraction of social media, cable news, and phone apps. The writer of Hebrews warns us to lay aside every weight and the sin that entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Sometimes the things that distract are not wrong or harmful in and of themselves, but they may occupy a more prominent place in our hearts than our love for and devotion to Jesus. Ask yourself, is there a relationship or a career move or other life change that would potentially jeopardize your devotion to Jesus and your readiness for his return? Our Sunday gathering is a primary means of grace for each of us and for our families. Do we view it as such? Or do we allow other activities to regulate our priorities? In Hebrews, we are told to not neglect meeting together, but to encourage one another all the more as the day of judgment draws near, as the day of his return draws near. Brothers and sisters, let us not neglect the means of grace that are available to help us be ready for his return. But I think it's important we need to understand and know what our motivation is. Are we motivated by fear or legalism, trying to produce good works in order to please the Lord or earn his favor? We've got to remember, as our parable says, it's a wedding celebration we are waiting for. Our anticipation is rooted not in fear, but in love and the joyous expectation of Christ's return. It's God's love and our love for him that motivate us. And so my third and final point, do you have an accurate view of heaven? Do you have an accurate view of heaven? While we wait the day when we'll return to be home with the Lord, when sin and death will be no more and when there will be no more sickness or pain or suffering, the primary focus of heaven is seeing the Lord. <clears throat> My wife, Jean, she is a consistent example to me of a person who longs to be with her Savior. And inevitably, as she and I grow older, I know I'm sounding like Larry, <laughs> as we grow older and are faced with our own mortality, she expresses her longing to be with Jesus. To go to heaven, yes, but to see her Savior face to face and to worship him. The Apostle, bon the Apostle John in 1 John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has, yet, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall, we shall see him as he is. And so, as we conclude this morning, ask yourself, consider, what practices can you put in place that will heighten your expectation of his, his return and identify distractions that hinder your devotion and readiness for his return. We want to meet, we want to be ready to meet the bridegroom when he returns. 
And brothers and sisters, we can be sure of this. The bridegroom is returning for his bride. And that is our glorious hope this morning, to one day be at that wedding feast so we can see Jesus face to face. Now, there may be those here this morning who the idea of Jesus coming back is a totally foreign concept and perhaps one that you haven't given much thought to. Well, we would love you like the wise maidens and many of us here to be ready for his return. And so if you haven't trusted Christ for your salvation and the forgiveness of your sins, I invite you to do that. We want you to be ready to meet him. Not to be found searching through the night looking for that flask of oil. Jesus invites you to repent of your sins and trust the gospel. He has promised all who repent and believe will be saved. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Our hope is in the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior. As a church, Lord, and for each of us individually, help us direct our hearts and the longing of our souls toward that day when we see Jesus face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.